Today's episode is brought to you by GCN Plus, the place to watch all the best live bike racing and loads of brilliant cycling films too. And if you get an annual pass to GCN Plus now, you'll get a whole season's worth of action and pay less than half the price of 12 monthly subscriptions. You'll be able to watch all of your favourite races, including Grand Tours, Monuments, Classics, Major Stage Races and more, live and ad-free on GCN+. That's including the resumption of the rivalry between Wout van Aert and Machi van der Poel at the Classics opener, Umlot Het Nieuwsblad. That's on the 25th of February. And Strada Bianchi on the 4th of March, where they'll also have Tajay Pojakar to contain with. Along with all the live action GCN Plus has on-demand highlights and replays, proper analysis from ex-pros like Magnus Backstead and Danny Rowe, and the exclusive World of Cycling show, a weekly roundup of the must-see moments and major talking points in road, gravel and cyclocross. GCN Plus also has a huge library of exclusive cycling films and documentaries with new releases added every week. You can watch it all on any of your devices and screens, so you never need to miss a key cycling moment again. All of our UK listeners can get 15% off an annual GCN Plus subscription by heading on over to gcn.eu slash cyclist15. Welcome back to another episode of Cyclist Magazine Podcast. James, how are you today? Uh, I'm very well, Anthony. Nice to have you back with me because I was on my Todd last time because you were doing things, fancy things, fancy man things like getting yourself a new studio from um, some kind of bespoke studio builders in another country because you're Irish, so Northern Ireland, that's another country international studios <laughs> controversial controversial we won't Ooh, go. oh yeah oh no sorry but geographic and <laughs> uh, well whatever i don't know maybe we should like pull that bit back maybe we won't i don't know but we, we won't steer any further into that topic but yeah how was um yeah how's how's life because you're not even you're not even in that studio you look like you're in a hotel room yeah i'm in london so i'm big build out on uh, the roadman cycling podcast studio at the moment because i'm moving it more to in-person interviews so uh trying to deal with you know the hassle of this moving house at the moment tradesmen construction men they're they're not the most reliable timekeepers in the world so i've been dealing with that for the last few weeks my stress is off the radar oh dear how long what's what's your uh, long-term prognosis how far when can you actually get back into your house when are we going to see your lovely studio again uh, I would say we're still two, three weeks away. So who knows? And this is my second last podcast with Cyclist Magazine. So it's getting to be quite an emotional time. It is quite an emotional time. And I don't know what kind of platform you're going to find to be able to advertise the Roadman Cyclist podcast anymore if you don't have this one. But it has <laughs> no, it has been a wonder it has been a wonderful time. Um but apart from yeah, the whys and wherefores of, of studio building and uh yeah, trades, trades people, actually, Anthony, I think you're fine. Not tradesmen. Come on, we've got to change we've got to change the conversation by changing the vernacular. Um yeah, what else has been going on in your life? Tell me one really fun thing that's happened to you and one really rubbish thing that's happened to you. Well, I'm one week away from bike racing at the moment, and that would have totally freaked me out before because I'm traveling to London, as you identified from my uh, pretty shabby-looking background in the hotel. I'm in London at the moment for the three days total, and so I'm going to be six days without being on my bike before the first race of the season. That would have totally freaked me out a few years ago. But the conversation has slightly changed for me. It's not like, how good can I be at cycling anymore? Because if you have that open-ended, how good can I be at cycling? 
it's a runaway train that just wreaks havoc on every area of your life. It's like professionally, you just atrophy, your relationships go to shit. It's like, how good can I be at cycling within this new container? And this new container is, okay, occasionally I am going to have to travel for work. Occasionally I'm going to have nights out and less than optimum preparation. And that's, this is testing my resilience, but I'm, I'm holding up. I'm going to hit a yoga class here after the podcast. Wow, how times have changed. Yeah, my, yeah, I know what you mean about containers. My container looks like this. It's basically about an hour and 15 minutes and I do it every three days. And I call that my cycling training. I call that my cycling racing. I call that my cycling passion and hobby. It's not, it's not going well. Cycling to me has become this unobtainable dream of having time outdoors when constantly I just feel that the weather and, and work kind of conspire to keep me in. So I'm looking forward to getting reacquainted with the turbo because I feel like you can do a lot more in an hour and a quarter on a turbo than you can outside. For sure, for sure. But I am actually a bone to pick with you. I'm, I'm mortally, grossly offended. You personally penned an article about cycling in Dublin and I wasn't contacted to be your local correspondent. What was going on there? Well, I mean, there's two things going on there. Number one, thank you very much for reading cyclist.co.uk, our website. <laughs> thank you for allowing me to lead in with that. Um, but that wasn't pre-planned at all. So that's nice. And I, I know that's popped up probably because I think you probably just Google Dublin every day. That's part of your like morning coffee <laughs> I Google ritual. Google Spender. I have an yeah. alert set up on Google for you. <laughs> um, yeah, whole RSS feed just for Spender. Yeah, well, I went to Dublin. I went cycling with uh, someone that you know, Aidan Duff from 51 Bikes. He took me out into the, the Dublin wilds, um, did some gravel riding. Tell you what, there's some really steep old climbs around there. It's um, It was pretty punchy because I don't consider Ireland as like it's not mountainous in the kind of you know alpine sense, but bloody hell, it's pretty tough going. Yeah, gravel riding in Dublin essentially means gravel riding in the mountains because we have a mountain range that separates Dublin and Wicklow, which is our neighbouring county. And so there's, you know, gravel that's just become so trendy and hip and everyone wants a gravel bike at the moment. But a lot of that demographic who are aspirational gravel riders they're looking at dirty cans and they're looking at these, you know, far-flung meadows in the US. That's not the reality of owning a gravel bike in Ireland. It's like 15, 20% climbs, steep pitches, steep descents. It's kind of a different beast. Yeah, there's quite a lot of getting off the bike, shouldering it and uh, walking up hills. But my main takeaway actually from Dublin, uh, now I'm casting my mind back, is the fact that I couldn't get served anywhere past 10. I couldn't even buy a beer in a shop. What's going on? You're going to the wrong places, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I was probably in the absolute tourist traps of uh, of Temple and stuff. But um, anyway, well, you know, let's not talk about things that we've done that other people can't can't be a part of in that kind of way because, you know, these are my memories and thank you for indulging them. But we're going to move on and we're going to welcome to the show Cyril Vincent. Cyril is making a documentary which is called The Whirlwind about Marshall Major Taylor, which possibly it's a story you haven't heard, which is kind of the reason why he's making the documentary. Marshall Taylor, Major Taylor, was the first black American um, cycling champion, world champion in the 1890s, and only the second black American champion in any sport at that time. And he was a real trailblazer, and he set all kinds of records, quarter mile, half mile, mile, six day. He won countless races. He he won an awful lot of money in his time. He was incredible, at the time, he was incredibly famous. And yet this story has sort of been pushed to one side by the history books. So Cyril Vincent is here to to tell us that story, but he's also, as I say, making this film. So 
So some links in the bio if you'd like to support the film, and that can be um, you know donating a few quid or you know just sharing it on your socials because this is an amazing story and it is a story that needs to be told. So let's welcome to the show Cyril Vincent. Welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast, um, Cyril Vincent. You are directing. Um, producing, doing kind of quite a lot of everything uh, on an upcoming documentary on Major Taylor, who we're going to discuss today, um, called The Whirlwind. So, I mean, where to begin? Because this is an incredibly deep, rich subject that spans all the way back. This is a guy racing in, tell us when, in the 1880s, 1890s? Yes. And he's racing at a time when it's not easy to be a bike racer it's not easy to be a black athlete it's certainly i mean can you kind of set the scene of what cycling's like back in america in the 1890s because it's a pretty new technology for one thing isn't it so i'm assuming it's kind of the preserve of the wealthy what did the kind of complexion of cycling um look like back then well um thank you for uh, the opportunity james to um come on the <laughs> Cyclist magazine and um, you know share this story. Um, you know just to put things in in context, um, the story of Major Taylor is unfolding um, right around the time that America and pretty much the world is um, um, is going through some sort of a bicycle boom, but specifically America. Um, and not only that, in terms of uh, race relation. Um, it was just um, what historians have considered one of the worst period in terms of uh, race relation uh, in between American, um, you know, black and white. So there was um, something that was very uh, common at the time, the Jim Crow laws um, that were pretty much laws put in place um, under the, the terminology of uh, equal but separate and the idea was that you know um people were considered equal but were still required to stay separately yeah just to follow up on that and to kind of paint further a little bit of a, a cultural picture for what it was like because i think that's important we talk about barriers and inclusivity in sport now but so many of those cultural barriers have been eroded in other areas of society but back then, like you're looking at 1880, like in what year was slavery abolished? Uh, what year was segregation abolished? Well, is uh, it's not a so much of a, a easy answer because it depends on which side you were, and we know now that even after they said slavery was abolished, there was still some sort of a, a slavery going on. But let me. Uh, get something for you. So you are looking here at around 1865 um, when, you know, slavery was abolished. But again, um, there were still uh, people, you know, perpetrating uh, some sort of, I would say, <laughs> it was not really abolished when they said it was abolished. There was still some 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 sequels of it, some scars of it. Until uh, I mean, until even now, there's still people trying to exploit other people, exploit community, even exploit the term of uh, uh, diversity. It's a whole different conversation. Um, but yeah, to answer your question straightforward, 
the slavery was supposed to be abolished in 1865. And so that was kind of the end of um, the American Civil War. Yes. And, you know, a decade, 13 years later, Major Taylor, Marshall, actual name, uh, Marshall Taylor, is born. And his parents sort of, they take him north, or the family's moved north from um, from a southern state. But even so, the north is potentially slightly more progressive, um, the half of America at that point. But even so, you know, the bicycle is an expensive plaything of rich people. How did a young black kid manage to get his hands on a bicycle? Because I'm assuming that's, if nothing else, wealth is a huge factor here. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, still, these days is still an issue. It's still, um, it's still something that, you know, we struggle with. But not, you know, <laughs> to the same extent as with Major Taylor. So, yeah, he was born in Indianapolis, um, in 1878. And his father, uh, Gilbert, was a pretty much a coachman for uh, the South Hart family. That was a pretty wealthy uh, white family. So Major Taylor Farrow was working for them. And he used to take Major Taylor with him um, to work. And somehow the the father of that the other family real <laughs> um saw something good in Mijitello and and he asked Mijitello dad if he could you know um be some sort of friend or playmate with their son Daniel um uh, because Mijitello at that time was pretty much the same age uh with your son. So that was easy. That was done. They became good friends. And Mr. Taylor actually started living with that family uh, during the week. And he would go home on weekend. Um, and that's how um, he ended up getting um, his first bike. But really, the bike that really allowed him to to level up and to end up, you know, getting in that bicycle shop where he walked very early on in his career is when the, the South Hart family, at some point they decided to move to Chicago. And at that time they offer him a really nice bicycle um, that, you know, he was able to use to deliver newspaper because he has to get a job when that family move away. He moved back home with his parent and he has to get pretty much a job. So he was delivering newspaper uh, thing to that bike he got, and he was also riding. You know, he was so um, he was so frustrated about the um, his. I guess he was also struggling about his real identity because you know this is a guy that spent pretty much uh, a lot of the time with the millionaire white family, uh, and you know some days everything changed. He has to pretty much go back home and, and live the life that himself called a poor life. Um, turning in one day, he turned from the, the millionaire kid life to, to the poor life. So he was wrestling with that. And he did, you know, he did, he was attached to his friend Daniel. So when they left, one thing Mijitello did, apart from delivering newspaper, was really to... Uh, to ride when he had time, whatever he could do. And he would try to ride as fast as possible. Um, and 
at this point, this is when also he started learning tricks. And what he says, because Teller wrote his own autobiography, which gives us a lot of context in what, you know, was going on at the time in his own world. Um, so at that point, so sad, upset about the life, struggling with his identity, Major Taylor see in bikes uh, some sort of comfort, some sort of hope, some sort of friend. And he said himself that the the faster he could go, the better he felt or he did not have to think about the reality of life. So that's pretty much how he started with his first bicycle. You mentioned uh, that he wrote his own autobiography. Do we have an idea about his mindset? I'm assuming, you know, as you mentioned, just coming out of slavery, but also not really quite out of slavery. A big sort of idea for African-Americans was to not stand out, to fit in, to blend in with the crowd, to not attract attention to yourself. So do we know why he chose to shine this self-imposed limelight? Great question. Um, so far, you know, because part of what I'm doing is, is a lot of research and research is not something that really end. Like there are things that you discover sometime that you, after years of research, you did not find. So uh, there are many things that I'm sure I don't know. But Mr. Um, Taylor, when you read his autobiography and you read the other books and you read um, the literature of the time, um, but mostly his autobiography, because that would tell you what he taught. I guess he was, he had an idea and his idea was uh, to prove to the world um, that, you know, black and white, uh, I mean, that even black people in general um, can can also ride bicycle and, and can accomplish uh, great things just as much as white people could do, which was not, the culture of the time they 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 had a whole different perspective about you know what black people can achieve intellectually in the sport and everything which trickled down to the segregation system and everything that we know but um major taylor throughout his career was very focused uh and he knew that he could accomplish great things on the track and it's it's tricky because I don't want to say Mijutelo did not um was not an activist. I guess he realized that the best way for him to achieve things that would be impactful for him, for his time and and even our time today, because that's what we this story matters, is he had to um many people would call that uppity. Uh, but really, that's not that's not what Mijutelo was trying to be. He was focused to win and to show that um, black and white, you know, could do great things uh, if they were given a fair field and a square deal. This is his own term: fair field and square deal, and everyone could accomplish um, anything <laughs> that they put their their mind in and the work in. Um, so. He wasn't so much vocal about, you know, talking. He wasn't so much of a talking guy. Um, you know, the only time really that you read about Mijutelo getting upset and frustrated and react about it is um, the day before the world championship that he won in Montreal. Uh, 
That was in August um, 1899. Uh, he was, you know, he was coming from Chicago freshly, uh, and he already, um, you know, he he won couple world record in Chicago a couple of days before he went to Montreal to win the world championship. And the day before the event, he was pretty much joked out of a victory that he had. And people saw that, you know, I, I did read his account and I did also read newspaper of the time and other, other literature on the subject. It is said first that there was a lot of people, more than 20,000 people at the, at this velodrome in Montreal. And there were a lot more people outside. And what happened is Mijutelo actually, before the, the main race, the one mile, they had some sort of open race on August 8th, where, you know, they all came, all the great cyclists of the world competed that day, some sort of open ceremony. And Mijutelo pretty much won the, the, the first heat of that open ceremony, but the referee at the time decided in front of a whole crowd that, you know, Mr. Tiller did not win for whatever reason. Um, so they, they attributed the victory to somebody else. And Mr. Tiller had to confront the referee. Uh, and, and and he said, you know, he said himself, and I read also some article about that, that people in the velodrome actually were screaming uh, Mr. Tiller's name and, and were upset about the fact that, you know, he just won something and they took it away from him. But anyway, long story short, he did learn something about that race, uh, which he applied the, the next day at the race of August uh, 9. And, you know, and, and that was he needed to have such of a big gap that it would be pretty much impossible for the referee to um to deny him that he won because the argument the referee had the debut prior was that the gap was very tight. And at that time, there was no camera or replay to, to see everything, but they took, they had an excuse that the gap was very tight. And so they gave their victory to somebody else, which clearly it wasn't. But again, Mijotelo learned from that. And the next day he made sure that the gap was really big enough <laughs> for 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 people not to uh have any uh, suppositions um but yes many times even when he got he became a world champion um he still he was still refused uh to you know service in some restaurant in hotels uh he was receiving uh, menacing letters uh when he was traveling around to compete, uh, you know, people were trying to drive him out of town and, and scare him. And, and many times on the track, you know, um, he was exposed to violence. I remember one time here in Massachusetts, um, you know, uh, one rider came after him, after he won the race, one rider came behind him and choked him to unconsciousness. Um, and also he said many times people would throw nails at him, uh, eyes of bucket when he's riding. So I guess all that was present in his mind, but I think he kind of understood uh, that he needed to be stronger than that if if he wanted to make a real impact, he needed to be above that. Um, so he did not disregard that, but really it was not his focus. His focus was to prove that he, he can, 
if he was given a fair chance and a square deal. So did he did he always get that fair chance and a square deal in terms of events that he was allowed to race in? Obviously not from fellow competitors, as you just said there. You know, you've got a guy jumping him after the finish of a race and choking him out into unconsciousness, which is just insane. And just as a side note, what happened to the competitor who did that to him? Was there any <laughs> any anything happening? Well, they they fine him fifty dollar and uh, they asked him they asked him to restart the race. Obviously, Mr. Taylor could not because he this is a, he just passed out for fifteen minutes. Like you asking him to restart the race that he's obviously won. <laughs> so, but yeah, they they just gave him a fifty dollar fine. Wow, that that's just insane. But thinking of of the way that um, you know the huge crowds that were being drawn to places like Madison Square Garden, um, you know, to watch things like six day racing, you know, you've got twenty thousand people. Like you're saying in Montreal, you've got people outside um, really wanting to get in to see these things. But I'm assuming as well, this you know, at this time, just at the turn of the century, you're a few years away from the Tour de France kicking off in France. That's 1903. So. Did Major Taylor look to go abroad, and what you know, could he could he have sort of? I mean, did he compete abroad, and how did that kind of pan out for him? Because I'm assuming that maybe, yeah, Europe was slightly further ahead in the way it was treating cyclists compared to America. Yeah, um, he did. He did um, from around 1901 to 1910. Uh, Major Taylor did compete abroad. Um, we know now that he was um, in France, in UK. Um, I mean, we at least have one documented race that he was in UK at least once. Um, he was in Belgium, um, Australia, and I believe Germany. So the climate, you know, I don't want to say everything was clean. It was a clean slate abroad. The climate, but the climate was definitely very different from what he was experiencing in the United States. Uh, he was much more accepted in Europe, much more treated for for what he was than for his skin color. Again, I, like I said, I'm not saying it was perfect. There was still some resistance. And you, if when you get in the nitty-gritty of the story, you see that in many occurrence, there are some stories, some little stories that did not make the news, but... Uh, that, you know, Major Taylor just experienced and felt like he wasn't treated fairly abroad, um, you know, during his, uh, during his races. But in general, Major Taylor was happy about, um, his experience abroad because most people treated him well. Um, and in France, particularly, um, he was treated like a hero. I want to mention that um, around 1900, uh, Major Taylor was already, you know, when 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 he when he finished eighth place in the Madison Square Garden, um, that first professional season, his name started, uh, you know, people started hearing about him. Um, the, the press started talking about him, so his people was hearing about him all over the place because the six series was a big thing, um, and. When, you know, he won, he won the world championship with Montreal, um, you know, that actually put his, him on the map. Like the, the news went all, all over the world that this is a black man doing great things. Like, you know, and, and the news got to Europe as well. And media were very, 
uh, keen and people were expecting Mijitello to come and compete because, you know, cycling was also big there and probably even bigger than in America. Um, and um, people were expecting, wanted Mijitello to come and compete year before. But because at that time, many races were happening on the Sunday, um, Mijitello re- refused um, to race um, the first invitation he got. It is said that you know, they, they they gave him a whole package of fifteen thousand dollar money of the time. Um, you know, and he still refused to compete on Sunday. So promoters end up, you know, realizing that if they brought him, they could make much more money. So they kind of accommodated Mizutello and made sure he did not have to race on the Sunday. They came back with a better contract for him. And he accepted it. He went to Europe, had a good time, uh, won against a lot of champions out there. Um, the biggest one was, uh, uh, you know, that was really main chronicle in the press a lot was his race at the Parc de Prince against Edmond Jacqueline, um, you know, which is considered like the beginning of uh, the, um, the Paris Grand Prix. So there's this wonderful thing about cyclists. We can never admit when we don't know something. And it's just like me and ketones. So someone would mention ketones and I'd be all like, yeah, I know what that means. It's basically just an energy supplement. And it is. But as I've dived into a bunch of research from ketones experts, HVMN, it turns out there's a lot more to it. So it sort of works like this. Usually we burn carbs when we cycle, then fat is a backup. Carbs is easy, chuck it straight in the furnace. But for fat to become fuel, we need to turn it into glycerol and fatty acids first. I've got low levels of ketones in my bloodstream as I speak. But what HVMN scientists have done is to work out how to literally make ketones and to put them into a sports drink. They call it HVMN Ketone IQ, and you can drink it during a ride or before a ride. And the idea is that instead of burning carbs, then fat, then ketones when you're cycling... With Ketone IQ, your body gets a big helping of energy-rich ketones to use alongside the carbs and fat all at once. So it's kind of three sources of energy, not two. So it's the reason why I've heard about World Tour teams like Jumbo Visma using ketones. They can help you effectively ride faster for for longer. So if you fancy giving them a try um, and free energy for faster riding, you know, why not? Uh, Then visit hvmn.com and use the promo code cyclist at the checkout to get 20% off. So that's hvmn.com and the promo code cyclist for a 20% discount. And also, if you want to learn more about how ketones work, then HVMN's got a brilliant podcast, which is also really worth a listen. It's called Health Via Modern Nutrition with Dr. Lat Mansour. And you can find it in all the usual places. Talk to us a little bit about the Madison Square Garden sixth day, because finishing eighth place in that, there's many inflection points in his story, but this is one of the points where people start to view him a little bit differently. Like for listeners who don't know the context of this sixth day, can you explain like what the racing was like, what the public attention was like around this event? Well, um, first thing, this is the pretty much the first professional season of Mizutelo. He's around 19, um, and there's a lot happening. There's a lot happening. Obviously, the racial tension, and we are talking here about 1897, pretty much. And this is December, pretty much six months. Um, 
after the, the the decision, the Supreme Court decision, Places versus Ferguson happened, a big case on race. Um, and that's really where, you know, uh, historians believe that um, the, the the United States pretty much gave a license to people to perpetrate lynching and 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 segregation because again the Supreme Court just took a decision in that case that it was okay uh, to say we are equal but we're gonna it's also okay to be separate um, but anyway this is happening in that context Mejitello um, is not yet very known. Um, and he's under the wings of his mentor, Buddy Munger, uh, who, you know, advised him to move from Indianapolis to Worcester. At the time, Buddy was, uh, he had his time in cycling, but in, you know, high wheel cycling, and he was very known. But he turned later into a businessman and he created his own manufacturing company uh, in Worcester and in New York. And he had Michelle under his wings. And he believed in Mijitello. Uh, he thought Mijitello could be a champion if, you know, if Mijitello, uh, uh, listened to his advice, which he did. Um, and he prophesied very early on, I would say, <laughs> before they left Indianapolis that he would make Mijitello a champion. So, but he had a man, a, a shop in New York. Um, and he hear about this six day race and he want Mijitello to participate in the race. Uh, people as this is the first really professional race that Mijotella have a chance to participate because of segregation. Um, he did not really have a chance before to participate in professional race that were organized either by the League of American Women or the National Cycling Association and top races, uh, you know, were at that specific time were pretty much denying entry to African-American. Um, so Major Telov, because of the influence Buddy Munger had, uh, his mentor around here in the East Coast, um, end up in the six-day race. And also, you know, it's known that New York were a little bit tolerant about, you know, about race. So not perfect, but tolerant. And so they let Major Telov compete in this thing. Um, the press is infuriated like how could he people are like okay um you know first of all this <laughs> many people don't know about him uh, this is a black man so people think that it's really not a good idea for Mijitello to take part in that uh, and to some extent they even um i would say they even trying to scare Buddy Munger his manager um, you know, by, by, by telling him that, you know, this, this is where Mijotelo is going to die. Um, making menace that, you know, having Mijotelo enter this race is not a good idea. This is probably his last race. You know, if he ever even come out of that race and we know that he was the youngest, uh, amongst every other rider that was there. So there's so many things going on, but again, uh, it's incredible to see how Mijotelo does, is not really, uh, that he wrote his autobiography letter after his career was done, but it's incredible to see that at that time all he had in mind, all his focus was to win. Period. <laughs> you know, so all of this chaos is happening around him, but the guy is just like focused. Just so so focused. But with six day racing back then, because um, six day racing now is something that people will be familiar with. It still happens in the UK and Belgium in lots of places, and it's multiple events 
motor pacing, Madison, which takes its name from the event sort of developed at Madison Square Gardens, time trials. But back then, six-day racing, it was just Major Taylor, right? You didn't have a team of two. And what was the idea? The idea was just to go as far as you can in six days. Is that how it kind of worked? Yeah, so at you know the the, the title of the race will reveal it to some extent. It's pretty much a six day race. The person that put in the more miles win the race, and um, you pretty much have to set uh, right around the velodrome, um, the Madison Square Garden in this case uh, for six days. And if you you ride more miles, you pretty much win the race. And Mr. Taylor, um, you know. Many professional writers of the time dropped out of that race, but Mr. Taylor kept the race going. I believe uh, there were only 16 uh, people that end up after, uh, out of 35 uh, participants from the beginning. 16 uh, finished the race and Mr. Taylor was in eighth place. Um, so again, you know, you have to just drive around the velodrome, which is really crazy to think about. And, and during that time, uh, it is known that Major Taylor had a schedule. Uh, he would sleep for an hour and ride for eight hours. That was his schedule. But during the race, Major Taylor started hallucinating, you know, saying to his team that he, somebody is chasing him around the track with a knife. Uh, and, and he did not want to go back <laughs> on the track. Uh, so his team had to come up with psychological trick during the race to keep him on the track. At some point, they gave him some sort of water with what is believed to have been bicarbonate um, and made him think that it was medicine that was going to give him strength. And so he drink it and somehow magically it works. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, he, <laughs> and he wrote again for, for many hours before he came and said he wanted to quit, you know, because uh, at, at some point it was just so much for him. And, but somehow, uh, he ended up finishing the race in eighth position. So they're doing roughly, I think Major Taylor rode 1,700 plus miles across the six days. Yeah. Surely in that time, there's a lot of crashes to be dealing with. How are they taking those knocks and getting back on the bike? Is there painkillers used? Is there amphetamines used? <laughs> What's the testing regulations then? Yeah, like that, your question made me think of the time where doctor used to practice without any anesthesia, right? Like it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's unbelievable that some of those things were happening before, like, and people would go through that. But yeah, there was a lot of crash. Mr. Teller did crash himself at some point and people, you know, some crash would be even bad than others. You know, you could crash and that would be it and you could crash and come back which happened to Michelle but we know that during the six day race a few people did crash and have very serious pretty serious accident and I want to uh, say that from what we know um, at that time you don't see anybody with helmet you know like nobody <laughs> so <laughs> it tells you that uh, it, it was pretty that it could be pretty dangerous um, if someone was to crash in a really bad um, position. So it it was a dangerous spot, that's for sure. But there was... And it's still... Yeah, it still is. But there, but there, was, a, there was an incentive because I'm assuming if the crowds were that big, then the prize money must have been pretty substantial. What, you know, how did that... Yeah, how did that work? And also, 
what we know um, or what, you know, what I know from a bit of cycling history is just because someone wins a race, it doesn't actually necessarily mean that they get the money because all kinds of things happen behind closed doors, particularly in track racing, where a lot of it's kind of almost like wrestling. It's sort of fixed and the, you know, the, the champion, the people's champion will win because that keeps the crowds happy. So how much was at stake and did Major Taylor get all of it or was money kind of siphoned off by other riders or by even his manager? Yeah, and thank you for mentioning that. Uh, before before I actually talk about the money thing, I want to say the six-day race, people did love that race. Uh, and and it is said that, you know, the crowd will grow as time will go. Uh, so the first day we'll have a good crowd. The next day we'll have more crowd. And as time will go, and the idea behind that was the more craziness is happening on the track, the better is for the crowd. So they they would rather come on the fifth day where everybody's hallucinating and having a hard time <laughs> and <laughs> they will have a better show, right? Yeah. And then then very early on when everybody's still in line and, and trying and doing the right thing. So it was interesting to 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 know that people were trying to have fun when people on the track were having hard time. It is known also that Major Taylor did won the open race for that six-day race. So they had, like many major events, they always had some sort of open ceremony uh, or warm-up, whatever we want to call it. And, and Major Taylor did win that. But it was, I believe, a half-mile race. So it was pretty much what he's good at, <laughs> you know, like sprinting. Um, so... He won the race. He got $200. Um, and he got a lot of money directly. Like, when you look at his career, he got a lot of money through the wins that he gets, specifically at the Madison Square Garden. He won that open ceremony race. He won $200. Uh, he sent all the money to his mom. Um, you know, um, and it's known through his career that not that people were taking money from him. He personally gave it away. Like he will win and send it to his friend or give it to Bertie Munger. He wrote many times how much he won, many prize, uh, gold watches, a lot of uh, 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 space uh, that were, you know, part of the prize. And he will give it to his manager. And, and he was very grateful about the opportunities he was having. And he was making sure that he took care of the people who took care of him. So uh, we're looking at Major Taylor's evolution from a uh, would-be contender who's causing a little bit of a stir in the world of cycling all the way to becoming world champion. But how did that change the landscape for African-American cyclists who came after him? Did he beat a path that was then easier for them to follow? May, uh, I want to say maybe easy because they had someone to look up to because... That can make a big difference when you have someone to look up to, someone that look like you. Can sound cliche, but it's true. Um, so cyclists that black African American cyclists and black cyclists in general, because this is not just in America, right? Even in Europe, cycling is still pretty much a white sport. There is more progress, obviously, but is still in majority and for many reasons, you know, and we, and there's not one person to blame about it. Um, so, um, 
you are asking me was how 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 the landscape has changed. I don't think the landscape has changed a lot, but I do know that as far as cyclists are concerned, someone like Nelson Vale, um, that you know is an African American, Justin Williams, and people like Rashan Bahadi uh, that are popular in the cycling culture as African American, um, they all say they look up to Major Taylor. They still had their struggles. You know, uh, more recently, Justin Williams had to go through a lot uh, to end up creating his own company, Legion, uh, organization and team. And that's because he went through a lot uh, in, with the other teams that he races with. Uh, and and, and they, they say pretty much. But I think having someone to look up to um, lessen the burden a little bit because now you know that if Mizutello did, I can do it too. And if he did it in those conditions where everything was outright blatant that, you know, we, we do not want to deal with these people, uh, if he did one in those conditions, then I can do that today where things are a little bit more hided or structural or whatever. But I think... Um, there's still a lot of work to do in terms of diversity in the cycling industry uh, in America. But having Mizutelo there as a trailblazer and a pioneer really is inspiring and can lessen the burden. I'm not saying it's going to be easy or it has been easy, but um, again, I feel like having someone to look up to help. Did cycling of the day change in Major Taylor's lifetime? or, you know, for when he was competing, did he manage to shift the way that the media treated black African-American sports people? Or did we see as um, as spectators, did we see like younger uh, black riders coming through? Did any of that happen in his lifetime? Because it rather sounds like the better he got, the harder it was for him to be a cyclist because everyone went, hang on, you, you're not allowed to do this. You mean if acceptance changed change over his career, if he was better accepted? Yeah, and did his success help it make it easier for him to have further success or did his success create more resistance to his success? Yeah, that's why history is interesting because it's, it's complex, right? There's not always a one answer to things. Um, but in some cases, it did make his life difficult. Because now, you know, he can pretty much hide. People hear about him. People hear about what he's doing. So, and knowing how the, the condition of the country is and the laws, uh, it's pretty much like doing that for many people was like trying to compete, trying to be uppity or, or, or you know, winning on the track. The simple fact that he was winning for some people was considered like, like, a, like an attack. And so, yes, he was becoming a champion. He was getting more notoriety, but that also was, uh, it was good because, you know, the press would talk about him. He would win some prizes and everything. But at the same time, uh, it would put him in difficult situation. I remember many times later, even in his career, he went to race, I believe in Savannah and, and he received a letter to clear out as soon as possible. If not, um, you know, uh, he will get severe consequences. And that letter was sent to the motel where he was sleeping, to his room. And that letter was signed White Riders. Wow. <laughs> you know, and, and it was pretty much asking him to 
to leave, not to take part in the race. And if if he took part in the race, he was going to, you know, <laughs> I don't know, whatever. The, but they, and they said they mean business like they, they were serious. So, yeah, it did. It, it was not half and half. It did help him in some case and it wasn't good for him in other cases. In that particular case, did he did he go on to ride, or did he was he put off from riding that particular race? No, he he left. He left. Wow. He did not race that one because um, you know at this point, I guess he um, he was probably getting tired of really of the same thing over and over and trying to prove to people. You know, when you when you get to the top of the game, at some point. It seems like you don't, I guess I'm not, I don't want to talk for him, but I felt like he, he felt like he did not have to keep proving to people that he can do it. He already shows it. And if people don't want him someplace, he's just going to leave. He's not going to keep trying to prove that he can. They know that he can. How do you think Major Taylor would like to be remembered? What do you think his view of his own legacy was? I think. His view on of his own legacy was, um, I mean, there are there are few ways. He said himself that life is too short for any man to keep bitterness in their heart, and that you know pretty much probably drove him out to his uh, career. That was always in the back of his head because he had to forgive, he had to let go of everything to focus on the big picture, right? And and also he said again in his autobiography that um, you know one thing you learn about the track is it doesn't matter where you start it matter where you finish. So with that being said, he wrote his own autobiography as I mentioned, and in that autobiography the, he has he made an introduction forward where he he's talking about you know if he's writing. Uh, he, his story himself is not for personal glory, uh, but to perpetrate his achievement on the track uh, for all youth aspiring to an athletic career, but especially youth of his own group aspiring to be champion and have glory in any sport they want. Um, and so I think he wanted his achievement, he wanted his accomplishment to inspire generation to come of athlete in general, but specifically black athlete and black cyclists. And that's probably one of the major reasons he wrote his autobiography. Wow. And in terms of the man himself, where did he find himself in life? What was, yeah, what was, what, what did his actual, uh, his lasting, you know, last sort of 10, 20 years comprise of? Because he retired in his, in his early 30s. Um, he died in in the fifties. Did he die a rich man? Did he die a famous man? Did people remember him at the time, or or, or what happened? Well, uh, when Michelle retired, we know that he ended up, you know, racing an old time race. Later on in his career, he won the race, but he wasn't really much competitive. But um, he retired. Uh, he makes some investment out here in Worcester, and it doesn't work out. He get exchanged from his wife and his daughter, Sydney, and he moved to Chicago. He moved to Chicago uh, around 1930. He spent two years there and he passed away pretty much in poverty, trying to sell his book from door to door. 
Um, and, and it was just so sad. He was buried on a corner of a cemetery without even any mention of a plaque or anything just like that, like in a corner of a, of a cemetery where they usually put people that, you know, nobody claimed. So, um, very sad. Um, but it's not so sad though, because later on, we, we know down that his legacy is still going on through the alley that I've mentioned. But also there's a ser- there's a number of Mr. Teller cycling club around the country today that are, you know, um, preserving his legacy and riding, uh, carrying his name. But his ending was a little difficult. A lot, a, not a little, it was very difficult. Tell us about the documentary, when and how can people check it out? Well, the documentary itself is still uh, ongoing in terms of, you know, finishing. Right now we are in the end of the development phase. So we are financing the script um, and we are pretty much preparing to get into pre-production. But we are also fundraising because obviously I think that this documentary should have been made a long time ago. I shouldn't be the one. You know, I guess not that I shouldn't be the one because I'm doing it now, but somebody should have done this long time ago. Uh, cause this, you know, like if you, if you go on even bigger streaming platform or television, you will find a lot of things about people like, you know, uh, Chuck Johnson that came after him, Michael Jordan, uh, Serena Williams, LeBron James recently. You'll find things about this early high end produced documentary film and even movies. But it was, for me, it did not sit with me that there's nothing about Mijotelo, knowing that he's, he paved the way for all these people. So I don't have a straight answer as to when the documentary will be out. We are, we anticipate that it could be around the end of 2025, early 2026. But, you know, it's also going to depend on how fast we can raise the money that we are trying to raise to do this. Because I'm an independent filmmaker. I'm not back yet by the production company, except my own production and or a Hollywood production studio, which I think is crazy, right? Because this is a story that should be out there. And so where can our listeners um, help you achieve that goal of getting the documentary out in the next, uh, next 18 months, year or two years or so? Well, we did produce a trailer concept that is available on the website. Um, the website is www.worcesterworldwind.com. I could share that in email. Um, and we have social media outlet. Uh, we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, Whirlwind on Facebook, um, Whirlwind1899 on Instagram and on Twitter. Um, so I like to say, um, you know, cause everybody have a different way they can, a project like this is not just about money. Everybody has a different way they can contribute to this. You know, it could, somebody might not be able to give but they can share or they know somebody that can be interested to give or support the mission. So all I can say is if these stories sound like something that anyone out there wants to support in any way, please reach out and we can figure out how to work together. Um, again, obviously we are fundraising, we are looking for that money, but I'm very conscious that it's not just about money. Absolutely. Cyril, thank you very much for joining us on the Cyclist Magazine podcast and best of luck with the production for this. That's absolutely amazing, iconic bike racing story. Thank you very much, Anthony. Thank you, James. 
Thank you, uh, Cyclist Magazine appreciate, uh, and the podcast. I appreciate what you guys are doing. And I can't wait to uh, give you guys good news soon. James, I'm struck by the obstacles that Major Taylor had to overcome to make his way in the wonderful world of cycling. I've sat many a dreary Tuesday evening in my house looking at the indoor trainer with absolutely no excuse in the world to not get on the bike and ride. And I've still said, you know what, I'm going to take a rest day today. I'm not riding. (laughs) Can you imagine as he's sitting there on a Saturday morning getting ready to go on the club run, the anxiety that must be building up in his head, knowing that he has to get into a sport which is entirely white dominated. He's going to have to overcome racial slurs and prejudice all the way through the ride. And then you couple that with like you identified in the podcast that the bike is a very much an emerging tool at the time as well. So there's all those insecurities that come with just trying something new coupled with the race elements. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's totally bonkers. The race element alone just sounds horrendous because you're not, you know, you just said waking up and going on the club run. Wake up in the morning in your hotel when you've gone somewhere to go and do a race and you've got a note under your door that basically says, we're going to come and lynch you if you do this race. You need to be seriously worried for your life. Through to people throwing buckets of ice on him when he's riding. Um, the story that Cyril told us about getting choked, literally choked off his bike um, after after having won a race by a competitor just felt like this is not how these things should go. And then that competitor getting a $50 fine and then being allowed to compete again. It really puts so much stuff in perspective. Um, I remember reading a story about Eddie Merckx getting punched off his bike in the 70s um, in a Tour de France that he didn't end up winning by an irate French fan who didn't want to see a Belgian winning again. And you think, life was pretty hard for Eddie. <laughs> but tell you what, man, I don't know. I would have just given up. I really would have just given up. It just would have been utterly, utterly horrible. Because the more you won as well, the more people hated you. Yeah, he's just lucky Twitter wasn't around back then and the trolls, his <laughs> yeah. DMs would have been bad. Yeah, no, um, absolutely. And and it's also, yeah, it's one of those heartbreaking stories because the guy basically died. Um, he died in a poor house. He died in poverty um, really early, like a lot of cyclists do. He was 53. And yeah, he gave away a lot of money, but he also lost a lot through bad investments and various other things. And it was... Interesting fact, right? He because he was buried in the kind of in graveyards. You just have unmarked graves for people that are too poor to be for anyone to really know or care who they were. So they were just interred somewhere. That grave was later found, and with money that was raised by uh, the guy that owned Schwinn Bikes in America, um, he was exhumed and then given um, a proper burial. And since then, there are you know, Major Taylor has appeared more and more in the history books. But I do think it's amazing that Cyril is willing to make this film. And it is one of those things where you just think, why has no one told this story before? Because it is incredible. And it's so much of our time as well. That's the other remarkable thing. This story is 100 years old, 120 odd years old. And yet we're going through exactly the same things now again. Yeah, you get these figures in every sport where they come along and sport is never the same again afterwards. Like I grew up being a massive soccer fan and you get George Best coming along and all of a sudden football is never the same. It's this celebrity version of football going forward. You get Major Taylor coming into the sport. Sure, he has to deal with serious oppression. 
but he he knocks a pass through that hedge. He beats the road. So anyone coming behind him has a little bit less friction. They have a little bit of an easier time. And it's, you know, we've, we're seeing amazing breakthroughs from especially East African riders in the World Tour Peloton at the moment. And would they be there without the, the pass that Major Taylor broke for them? Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely not. But it is, it's just, yeah, it's heartbreaking and galling and all the words in between that it's, it's a path that's beaten so long ago. And yet it's only, you know, people are only really starting on that journey in cycling in the last sort of like 10 years. I think I mentioned it on the podcast last week. Um, I only recently learned, yeah, the first black rider to finish a Tour de France. So, you know, multiple people have, have ridden tours. Um, was 2011. So that sort of tells you about... Yeah, it's not... Yeah, that, that tells you so much. Um, so anyway, it's amazing these stories are, are finally getting told. So we wish Cyril the best of luck with that. So yeah, do go over to Worcester whirlwind.com and that's Worcester spelt in that weird way where it's actually like Worcester because you know we all left the UK we went to America particularly Massachusetts because it was closest and then we just like gave a load of stuff a load of English names so um, hey well done colonialism James want to go uh, chat to you next episode for our finale it's going to be massive it's going to be huge absolutely right nice one dude take it easy enjoy London don't get any trouble Today's episode is brought to you by GCN Plus, the place to watch all the best live bike racing and loads of brilliant cycling films too. And if you get an annual pass to GCN Plus now, you'll get a whole season's worth of action and pay less than half the price of 12 monthly subscriptions. You'll be able to watch all of your favourite races, including Grand Tours, Monuments, Classics, Major Stage Races and more, live and ad-free on GCN Plus. That's including the resumption of the rivalry between Wout van Aert and Machi van der Poel at the Classics opener, Umlot Het Blood. That's on the 25th of February. And Strada Bianchi on the 4th of March, where they'll also have Tajay Pojikar to contain with. Along with all the live action GCN Plus has, on-demand highlights and replays, proper analysis from ex-pros like Magnus Backstead and Danny Rowe, and the exclusive World of Cycling show, a weekly roundup of the must-see moments and major talking points in road, gravel and cyclocross. GCN Plus also has a huge library of exclusive cycling films and documentaries with new releases added every week. You can watch it all on any of your devices and screens, so you never need to miss a key cycling moment again. All of our UK listeners can get 15% off an annual GCN Plus subscription by heading on over to gcn.eu slash cyclist15.